welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. We're staying on our theme of treatments for painful conditions in the emergency department. And today we're going to be talking about the greater trochanteric block, as well as some techniques that I was not particularly familiar with called osteopathic manipulative therapy or OMT that you can do on your patients in the emergency department and they're billable for things like muscle spasm and muscle pain. Our presenter today is Dr. Alexis LaPietra. She is the chair of the ASEP pain and addiction section. She is also the system chief for pain and addiction at St. Joseph's Health in Patterson, New Jersey. She does such a good job organizing this. I'm largely going to stay out of her way. Thanks for being here, Alexis. So I am going to talk today about greater trochanteric pain syndrome and osteopathic manipulative therapy. So let's start off with a case. We see a lot of hip pain in the emergency department, and most of the hip pain we see is most likely osteoarthritis or sprains or strains, but there is a particular type of hip pain that we actually can treat really well with certain interventions. So it is important to identify what type of hip pain you are dealing with, and that way you can dictate what pain management is appropriate. So if we start off with a case of a 74-year-old woman who states she has had no trauma recently, but she does find over the past two weeks, she's having increasing pain when she's standing from the chair, going up the stairs, and really when she's actively moving around. She has been taking acetaminophen once or twice a day without much relief. She switched over to ibuprofen once or twice a day without much relief. She does report some localized tenderness laterally on the hip, and she wasn't able to get in to see the primary care physician who happens to be away. So she comes into the emergency department just a little bit concerned. When you're doing your physical exam, you do note that she has good range of motion, but she does have some pain with range of motion and a bit of point tenderness right on the lateral side of the hip. So you discuss what you think the plan will be with her and you have a discussion about your different analgesic options. So let's talk about what we want to identify today as a specific hip complaint, which is greater trochanteric pain syndrome. This, I think, is a pain syndrome that we don't really hear much about in emergency medicine, but can be very uncomfortable. And we do have great ways to treat it if we can identify it as such. So greater trochanteric pain syndrome is really an inflammatory process of the greater trochanteric bursa. It's a relatively superficial bursa in the hip. And it's surrounded by a lot of muscles of the hip joint that we use every single day for all of the activities. So it is subject to wear and tear. And it is most common, this pain syndrome, seen in elderly folks who have been doing a lot more activity or report that they've been doing more than normal. If we look here, we can see some of the muscles that surround the trochanteric bursa, the gluteus medius muscle being one, and the IT band being really the culprit. So with a lot of movement of the leg, flexing, really pushing down, you're having some exacerbation and some inflammation of the IT band, which can translate into inflammation and pain of the trochanteric bursa. You can also see here that it's squeezed pretty tight in between the IT band and the bones. So there's not much room for it to go when it's inflamed and gets swollen. And thus we have the pain. If we are looking at some key points to help us during our physical exam, this condition will really have point tenderness. It will have tenderness. The patient will report tenderness when they're active, when they're ranging their hip. They will be able to ambulate without significant difficulty, but they will report that it's sore. So if you have the patient stand up, a couple ways to identify exactly where the greater trochanteric bursa is. You have the patient or yourself put your thumb 
right on the top of the iliac crest. And where your middle finger falls in a straight line inferiorly will be the greater trochanteric bursa. When you palpate that area, the patient will report they have full reproduction of pain and they will be quite tender. Another way to isolate this is if you have the patient's arm laying right on the bed and they swing their finger over just to that midline lateral hip position, that will be the greater trochanteric bursa. And again, that will fully reproduce your pain. And lastly, the patient rolls over into the lateral recumbent position and you're palpating the iliac crest and you're drawing your hand close to becoming in line with that iliac crest, you're gonna feel a little lump or a bump. That's gonna be the greater trochanteric bursa. And again, palpating that bursa will fully reproduce pain associated with greater trochanteric pain syndrome. The best way to identify this syndrome is really by doing the resisted external derotation test. This test picks up most greater trochanteric pain syndrome because it actually causes the patient to activate all of the muscles around the bursa and it will flare the pain because the muscles are now squeezing the bursa. The way you do this is lay the patient supine, have the patient bend the affected leg into a figure four across their lap, and with some resistance, you're going to push against that lower leg. So you'll put your hand on the patient's knee and your other hand on the ankle. You will then say to them, please push against my resistance to try and fully straighten your leg into a neutral position. This movement of going from the figure four, pushing through your resistance down to a straight leg will engage those muscles and will flare the bursa and will fully reproduce the patient's pain. So these are a few tricks to identify whether or not you're dealing with an osteoarthritis, something different, or specifically the greater trochanteric pain syndrome. Of course, we want to be aware of all of the other joints pathology that exists within the hip, especially in the elderly population. But this is not joint pathology, this is soft tissue pathology. Joint pathology tends to have pain with passive range of motion and the range of motion is restrictive because a joint is actually involved with the pathologic process. Whereas when we're talking about muscle or tendon pathology, it really becomes more aggravated when you're moving, you're active, you're stretching. So these are some ways to also differentiate when you're talking to your patient and getting a history. It is important, even if you have all of the signs that this is not a fracture, it is really important to get a screening x-ray, especially in patients when we're not sure if they have osteoporosis, osteopenia. Also, you may surprise yourself and find things like calcium deposition within the muscles or the tendons, and that, of course, really changes the treatment that we're doing. So a screening x-ray is inexpensive. It gives you a lot of information, and it rules out all the badness that we might want to treat with another modality. Once you've identified this as greater trochanteric pain syndrome, you do have two options. So one is a non-interventional option where you will be utilizing non-opioid analgesics, a multimodal approach. So you would be asking the patient to combine acetaminophen, one gram, with ibuprofen, 400 milligrams, and adding on lidocaine patch or lidocaine ointment. This is one way where you can get synergistic multimodal pain management, and you'd have the patient do that for about a week or two. Another way to do this is substitute naproxen or naproxen in there. Because it's only twice daily, 500 of naproxen is easy for patients to remember to take. So you can have them leave it on the kitchen table. They can take it in the morning with breakfast. They can take it in the evening with dinner. 
It's long acting. You don't have to take it every six hours like ibuprofen. And they can also take acetaminophen with it. So you can have acetaminophen plus naproxen with breakfast and dinner, and or you can have the acetaminophen ibuprofen every four hours, depending on what they've tried, what they have at home. The other option is if patients are unable to take by mouth anti-inflammatories, we really do want to get anti-inflammatories to the site of pain because it is an inflammatory process. So in order to do that, we have to think about our topicals. So if we're not going to be using ibuprofen or naproxen, then let's reach for diclofenac patches or diclofenac gel. A lot of hospitals do have these patches or gels on formulary. It's a matter of finding out with your pharmacy what they have. And a lot of insurance plans actually cover these for outpatient. You can put a patch on, which gets changed twice a day, or you can use the gel, which you can put on every six to eight hours. The hip, again, this bursa is relatively superficial, so this is an ideal situation when we would want to use a topical anti-inflammatory when we cannot use a by-mouth anti-inflammatory. And at the bottom here, you'll see the highlight of physical therapy. This is important. We want the muscles around the bursa to be stronger. We want there to be appropriate stretching. And we want the patient to figure out how to really utilize different body mechanics to avoid injuring or making this, this pain worse. However, if the patient has had this for months, if they have tried ibuprofen acetaminophen, they've tried the topicals, they've gone through physical therapy, and they're really feeling like not much else is working, or you have a patient for whatever reason cannot take a variety of these medications and we're very limited with the medications we can give them, before we escalate to opioids, which we know can be dangerous in this population, we do want to think about a bursa injection. It is a sterile procedure. You would, of course, obtain consent before doing the procedure. You want to grab a 22-gauge, 1.5-inch needle. That will get the majority of the bursa, the depth that you need for the bursa. However, if there is a situation where the patient has um, significant adipose tissue over that site, you really want to ensure that you have a needle long enough to get down to the bursa because you are actually injecting into the bursa itself. You need about five cc's of lidocaine, bupivacaine, ropivacaine, whatever local anesthetic you have, preservative-free without epinephrine. And then we do want to actually use triamcinolone or a steroid for this injection because it is a long-term chronic inflammatory issue that's been brewing, and we want to go ahead and get a little bit of immediate local anesthetic relief, but also that longer acting anti-inflammatory with a steroid. And then you just need a Band-Aid. So these are really, this is equipment that you should have around, and this is what you need to gather for your procedure. You again are going for that greater trochanteric bursa. So this is just to remind you, it's a very superficial bursa. You are going to palpate the area of maximum tenderness. You can use the tricks by putting the thumb on the iliac crest and then allowing your finger to go straight down, or you can really palpate around that area until you feel the greater trochander, and then you're having that reproducible tenderness right over it. And here is the injection. Ideally, you'd lie the patient in the lateral recumbent position with the affected side up. You're going to clean the area where you want to inject, so clearly over the bursa where you have full reproduction of the pain, and you're putting the needle in pretty much straight down. You might have a little bit of an angle anteriorly you're going to put it until you hit bone. You're going to back up one to two millimeters. You will then be within the bursa. You inject your five cc's of local anesthetic plus one milliliter of triamcinolone. And then you take the needle out. You can give a little rub into that area to disperse the medication and you put the Band-Aid on. 
So some of the benefits of the injection. There was one study by Brinks in 2011. It showed that at three months post-injection, the injection group, 55% of patients reported relief of their pain, whereas in the solely analgesic group with no interventions, only 34% of patients stated that they had relief. So really, we have two options for this. We have the option of the conservative method with analgesics, but we also have the option of doing injections for patients that have issues with the analgesics offered or maybe who have failed analgesics as their option when they first started out with the disease process. So now we're going to move quickly on to OMT. So this is really changing gears from interventional to other hands-on kind of non-pharmacological approaches to pain. So we're going to also start off with a case. This is a case of a 62-year-old gentleman who was involved in a motor vehicle collision six days prior to presenting to see you. He did see your colleague immediately post-MVC and was found to have whiplash injury, a little bit of torticollis, had some spasm. He did not require any imaging. There was no significant concerns for C-spine injury. He had no focal neuro deficits. He felt well in the emergency department after he received non-opioid analgesics, but he comes back and says to you, this is what I was prescribed. I'm taking ibuprofen. I'm taking acetaminophen. I'm using the lidocaine patches, but you know, I really still can't move my head to the left. It's really difficult to drive because I can't really look through the mirrors and I feel a lot of tenderness, a lot of spasm. He also reports he really is not getting good night's sleep, which we know is an important component of pain management because he said it's just too stiff. He can't get comfortable. So at this point, we want to know what else can we do? We, of course, can always escalate to opioids, but we know for muscle spasm and for acute injury like this, we probably need to do something before we get there with opioids. Opioids are simply masking pain. We really would like to use any intervention to treat the pain. So that's what we're gonna talk about. In his physical exam, you really find there's nothing distinctly focal. It's just global tenderness and global spasm. So trigger point injection is off the table. And what else can we do? So we're going to talk about osteopathic manipulative therapy. This is a hands-on skill used to diagnose and treat illness by encouraging the body's natural tendency towards healing. So what that means is we're putting our hands on the patient, we're feeling the muscles, we're feeling the tendons and bones, we're feeling the injury, and then we're going to, with massages and stretching, we're going to encourage those muscles and tendons to get back to that homeostatic state pre-injury so that you can have restored function and decreased pain. This technique can be done for every single part of the body. Today, we're gonna to talk mostly about neck because the neck is mobile, it's easy to do in the ER, you can do it sitting, you can do it standing, and it is a reimbursable procedure. There is a CPT code associated with osteopathic treatment and with proper documentation and proper diagnoses for discharge, you are able to get reimbursed for doing the skilled procedure at bedside. And it is so applicable to us in the emergency department because we see, this is an old number, we probably see 170 million ED visits per year. And you know, 11% of them have musculoskeletal complaints or sprains or strains. If we were using our hands for cases of failed non-opioid analgesics or for patients who cannot take non-opioid analgesics, we would have a large audience where we would be able to utilize this hands-on procedure and we are able to get paid for it. When you take time to go do your central line or your intubation, you know, we know that's what the patient needs and then we bill appropriately for that. Well, OMT may be what the patient needs and then we can bill appropriately for that as well. So I want to talk to you about two studies that were done in the emergency department. One was on ankle sprain. 
the ankle sprain study looked at OMT plus Tylenol or Motrin versus Tylenol or Motrin alone. And with five minutes of dedicated osteopathic treatment of the ankle sprain, patients had improved range of motion and reduced pain. Similarly, with the neck pain study, patients came in with acute occupational neck pain. They received five minutes of osteopathic treatment on the neck, or they received intramuscular Ketorolac. And at one hour post-OMT or post-Ketorolac, both groups had similar pain relief. The OMT group actually felt the intensity of their pain was less. So the pain score was the same as the Ketorolac group, but the perceived intensity of their pain was less. And I believe that to be related to the fact that the Physicians spent time putting their hands on the patient, relaxing the patient, stretching, and massaging the patient a bit, and it just adds an extra layer to the care that you're giving the patient in the emergency department. One wonderful, very easy technique that you can do in the emergency department for any neck pain, and actually some for some lower extremity pain, is something called muscle energy. The idea behind muscle energy is you want to stretch the patient to their physiologic barrier. You want to stretch the neck to where they cannot stretch anymore because the muscle is spasmed. And you want to engage the patient, asking them to push against you, but not allowing the muscle to contract. So we're asking the patient to engage in isometric contraction. This sends signals to the brain. The brain says, you know, the muscle wants to contract. We need to really lengthen. So instead of contracting, let's just lengthen, lengthen. And after three seconds of isometric contraction, if you stretch again, the muscle has triggers from the brain to lengthen and you will actually get a bigger stretch and you will now have a new barrier. So let's go through this with some pictures. So if you have the patient laying supine and you're stretching their neck to the left, this is the physiologic barrier. So they're not stretching anymore. The muscles are not going beyond this. But if you have the patient push against your hand for three seconds, not allowing the head to move, but engage those muscles, they will fire to the brain and say, listen, it's time to stretch. Now you stretch again and you will find you have a new barrier. The head will move and you'll see the muscle actually stretches more. So you do this three times. After doing the isometric contraction and stretch, isometric contraction and stretch, three times you will see significantly improved range of motion just with the simple activity that you're doing with the patient. You can do this sitting up, you can do this laying down, you can do this rotation, or you can do this like we are here doing in a side bending technique. So lots and lots of different ways that you can get a lot of good muscle stretching for the neck when you have patients who present with muscle spasm. Similarly, for hamstring injuries or lower extremity injuries, you can also do this because the lower extremities are so mobile and easy to manipulate. Uh, you would stretch the patient all the way to their barrier. Then you would ask the patient to push against you. Do not allow them to move though. We're looking for an isometric contraction. After three seconds, they relax you push to a new barrier and you'll see that you're going to get extra movement and you again do this three times. By the time you're done, you'll see significantly improved range of motion and significantly less spasm and pain. There are some contraindications to this procedure. If the patient has such significant, exquisite muscle pain, you can't touch them, you can't really stretch them. You know, this is an acute injury, less than 24 hours old. We do not recommend doing osteopathic manipulative therapy. Really, it's just too much on that very acutely inflamed muscle. If they have severe, debilitating osteoporosis and you're afraid they're gonna break their bones when they cough, 
we would prefer that you don't manipulate these patients. If people are intubated with central lines with borderline blood pressure, just let them be, no osteopathic treatment. And any fracture, joint instability, or dislocation anywhere near the site of treatment, that would be a contraindication. If there's a malignancy at the site, it is unclear whether or not cancer cells are spreading or how it affects really that malignancy. So we would prefer to leave that site alone, osteomyelitis, and an uncooperative patient who doesn't want LMT. take. So those are your contraindications. Now for documentation, which is important because, of course, we want to bill and get compensated for the time we took to do the skilled procedure at bedside, you need to simply document what area you performed the osteopathic treatment on, and then you want to say a few things. You want to say there is tenderness, restricted range of movement, asymmetry, and or spasm. You just want to highlight that there are abnormalities in the muscle that would cause concern for injury and spasm, and then you would state the muscle that you're going to treat. You then wanna say what technique you used, which is the muscle energy, and like any procedure, you'll know whether or not there's any complications, and of course, that it was the right procedure on the right patient, and the time out was performed. For discharge, this is important, and also for your, if you're doing your billing, or you have a billing company, you wanna let them know about the CPT codes. The 0.25 documents for them that it was done in the emergency setting, and then these are some of the diagnoses that you'd want to include along with any other diagnosis that the patient has. So cervical somatic dysfunction, thoracic somatic dysfunction, or lumbar somatic dysfunction. So those codes are going to be pulled with the CPT code and your procedure all to make sure that you have every single piece necessary for reimbursement for your procedure. And a note on patient satisfaction. So we know that patient satisfaction is a big deal. It's been a big deal now for quite a few years. We've seen the studies you know, yes, patients want their pain scores to be addressed or their pain to be addressed. And sometimes patients are more satisfied if their pain score is lower. Sometimes they're not. We also know sometimes patients are not satisfied even if we give them the medication they're asking for. But the patients are the most satisfied when they feel the practitioner has done everything within their power to assist them. They want to know the physician cared for them and the physician was compassionate. When you use osteopathic manipulative therapy, you have to sit down with the patient, number one, and let them know what you're doing. And then you have to touch the patient. And you have to touch the patient for a few minutes. You have to touch their muscles. You have to stretch them. You're going to have them breathe. You're going to have them talk with you. And this is a way to really have a rapport and build a brief but important relationship with the patient. And this is what contributes to excellent patient satisfaction. So this is not only a technique that you can bill for, this is a technique that works, and it's a technique that has patient satisfaction written all over it because you really have to engage that patient for a few minutes and you have to put your hands on that patient. So the take-home point for osteopathic manipulative therapy is it really is an easy hands-on procedure. There are many, many techniques, but we just covered muscle energy at this time. But any injury that's lingering with significant spasm, we really need to get in there. We need to stretch the patient and we can even show, that, show them how to do some of these stretches at home. It is satisfying for the patient and it will be satisfying for you as well. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the ASAP Equal podcast. I hope that this one gave you some things to think about and try on your next shift. Certainly both of these topics were things that I didn't really know anything about before listening to this interview. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. Or earlier in this feed, they're all titled under ASAP Equal. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Thanks for listening.